Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, February the 9th, 2012. This is episode 837 of the Survival Podcast. And I have back with us once again Matthew Stein, author of When Technology Fails and When Disaster Strikes. We're going to talk about a lot of cool stuff today, uh, including a lot of stuff about herbal medicines, uh, a lot of stuff about foraging and how to get started in prepping if you haven't done so, some advanced topics. It'll be cool. I think you'll get a real insight into the massive wealth of information that Matthew provides through his work. Anyway, we'll have him on in just a moment. Uh, before we do, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, silverandgoldshop.com. The wonderful Mary Beth Maidmont, of course. Um, you know, folks, it's... Uh, it's often the case that I talk about silver and gold on the show, and I am not a gold bug. I am not someone that says to make sure that you have 90% of your money in gold and silver. I'm not a person that says something that I think is completely asinine, like only silver and gold are money. Uh, actually, I don't even think silver and gold are money. I think they're a commodity. But I think they're a very valuable, very important commodity that have a history of value over the long term that really nothing else compares to. And I think when something is a commodity like that, and it's easily storable, and it lasts forever, it makes sense to have it be part of your overall life portfolio. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 5% or more of your net wealth, probably not 20%, 5 to 10 is about the right area to do that. And I think it makes a lot of sense to put some variety into that and some cool factor. And I think you can do that with Silver and Gold Shop. You go over there and they have some really awesome silver rounds. Silver's not that expensive. It's easy to add an ounce or two or three a month to your collection or maybe once a year to save money on shipping to add, you know, maybe 10 or 12 ounces a year in one shot. It's also something awesome to give away to kids instead of another piece of plastic Chinese crap at birthdays and holidays and stuff like that. So consider adding it to your portfolio and consider adding it to your gift giving. And check out silverandgoldshop.com to get some really cool stuff and really great service from Mary Beth. Next up, uh, Harvest Eating with Chef Keith Snow. You know, we're going to talk today about a lot of wild edibles. We're going to talk about growing your own food. I talk about it all the time. A lot of the stuff that people are able to grow really successfully is, is things that aren't necessarily available in the uh, grocery store. Some of it just doesn't ship well. So even though it's great food, it, it, it just doesn't really lend itself to mass distribution. And because of that, you may not know what to do with it all. Well, if you go over to HarvestEating.com and you start listening to what Chef Keith has to say, you'll learn how to use cooking as a life skill. You'll learn how to cook seasonally and locally, and you'll learn to cook based more on techniques than recipes. And when you add all that up together, you'll be able to take all that great food that we're going to talk about gathering and growing and make it into great healthy meals for your family. You'll also be able to buy really awesome seasonings, really awesome herbs for your cooking that just rock. Check out the steak seasoning. It is just flipping amazing. And uh, check out harvesteating.com and Chef Keith Snow. Get his cookbook, man. It's a pretty amazing cookbook. It's something that's so well illustrated that it would make a good coffee table book. It's that kind of a thing. Uh, next up, remember, you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Uh, I'll tell you what, guys. It's a really great thing, a great way to stay in touch with me. And I put out a lot of content that listeners send me that I simply can't work into the show, especially on Facebook. I would say even more, much more so than Twitter. Uh, I put out stuff on Facebook, two or three things just about every day. YouTube, we have some more stuff coming for you soon. Make sure you're a subscriber over there. Uh, last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You'll be supporting the show at about 18.3 cents an episode, and uh, you'll get great benefits like $150 worth of free ebooks the day that you sign up. Uh, all that for 50 bucks a year. Remember, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, or prior service. Just shoot me an email. Tell me when you served or where you're currently serving and uh, what you're doing or what you did, and I will send you a special discount code to thank you for your service to our country uh, because I believe that service should be recognized, and that's the one way that I can do it, and I can do it every day and make it part of our community. That's why I do that, folks. 
All right, folks, as I said during the introduction segment, we are fortunate to have back with us uh, once again Matthew Stein, author of two great books, When Technology Fails and When Disaster Strikes. Uh, Matt has made really uh, developing these books and developing this information and helping people be better prepared his life's work. He's a great guy with a ton of information, second appearance, so he's a returning guest. Hey, Matthew, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. Oh, Jack, thank you so much for having me back on your show. It's a real pleasure. You know, I love having you on because you have, like, I mean, we were just chatting about your book before we got started with the show. It's it's a comprehensive manual to dealing with anything from a mundane to a severe disaster and everything in between. Uh, but, of course, this year is a big year, man. It's 2012, and there's a thing a lot of people trying to make a big stir up about the Mayan calendar and stuff like that. You think this is a critical year, but not necessarily because somebody carved it in stone a couple thousand years ago. Yeah, is that the case? That's correct. I, I see 2012. I mean, 2012 is bringing anxiety to me, not because of the Mayan calendar, but because of the trends I see happening in the world. I mean, you know, I had really zero concerns about the year 2000. and 2012, I'm not worried about the Mayan calendar, but what I see happening in the world, I believe by the end of 2012, the troubles we're in in our planet will be so in our face It'll be so obvious that we're in real trouble, that the way the world is going is not going to keep going much longer, and that we've got to be self-reliant and prepared to deal with things falling apart and getting a lot worse than they are right now. My biggest concern, and I don't know that I that people will even accept it by the end of 2012, but soon thereafter, is the financial situation. Um, I see tremendous misery yet to come. I don't think like we're hearing now that the worst is behind us. Detroit put out or uh, Chrysler put out this great Detroit is coming back out in the Super Bowl, and there's a lot of that that I think is part of the uh, not the commercial itself, but the whole movement is part of get somebody reelected or get somebody new in or whatever. But I just see a lot of problems in the financial sector. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I agree. I feel that the that the the financial systems of our world were based on like unlimited growth and based on just exponentially growing, growing, growing every year. And we're starting to see problems all over the world where we're kind of hitting the wall in the growth area. So I think that financially we're just, we're just seeing the bubble. You know, the bubble collapsed in real estate. It couldn't exponentially grow all the time. Bubbles collapsing. Energy prices are exponentially growing. And when they grow up, business goes down. So we've got all of these different things that are kind of coming to a head, and I don't see the current financial model pulling out and getting much better. I see getting better in the short term, but in the long term, still sliding down. That, that's interesting you said that. I've been forecasting a what I would call a false recovery before the collapse. So like I'm going back to like June, July of 2008. I'm like, you're about to see a tremendous fall in the market, then you're going to see it languish for a couple of years, and you're going to see this thing that's going to make it look like it's getting a lot better, and people are going to go back, and that's when people are going to get hurt. So do you, like, so you say it's going to get better. Like, how much better do you think it gets before it drops the second, you know, the second side of this fall? Is it a little bit better? Is Because I think it's personally not really a lot better, but I think it looks a lot better to the person that doesn't know. Yeah, I think, I think that you're seeing, you're not going to see the jobs come back to America. We don't have another internet revolution on, on the horizon. Now, maybe there's some new technology that's going to pull us out and make everything better. Some free energy devices finally go public. But, you know, that's kind of wishful thinking. So I, I just don't see anything other than false Wall Street optimism pulling us much beyond where we are right now. And, and the truth of these limits to growth on the planet are just going to start knocking us down harder. You know, where's the jobs? What's going to come back to America? I yeah. don't see it. You know, that's what kind of scared me. I did some real, uh, real intensive analysis of things like gross domestic product and all, and it really didn't drop that much, but the number of people contributing to it dropped. And what that means to me is it's not even just that the jobs went overseas. In many cases, the jobs are eliminated. The recession came. Big employers looked at 10,000 person headcounts and went, Okay, let's lose a thousand of them. And it's not like if they get the business they had back, they need those thousand people back. Now they've leaned out, they've improved systems, they, they don't need those people. And those, like, I think what you're saying is those jobs are gone. Well, yeah, I think they're gone. I mean, the base manufacturing, that's, there's the multiplier effect. When you spend $10 in your town, 
that ten dollars, you know, buys goes into somebody else's paycheck, and they go out and they spend it, and it goes around. So the base of that that keeps that going around is is when people have manufacturing jobs, because let's face it, you know, not many of us are in the one one or two top percent where we're making money off of our money. Most of us have to make money off of our jobs, and jobs aren't paying that great these days. You know, they 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 ship out. The high-priced jobs, even engineering, and, and you know, it used to be like, oh well, okay, you know, we'll ship out the junk jobs, but at least the the, the high-end jobs will still be here. Well, now those high-end jobs are going mm-hmm. out to India and China and Malaysia and, and getting outsourced too. So, you know, where does it end? It just ends with poverty for the average American person if you're not in the top two percent. What I mean, people talk all the time about an economic collapse, right? I. I was just did, did my show yesterday, and I was talking about people that say they're preparing for a financial collapse. And my usual my responses to them is, well, what kind? Because look, and then and the follow up to that, when they give you the deer in the headlight look, is how well did you do with the last one that we're still in? So the financial collapses take varying degrees. Um, I see this one getting worse. I think you do too. But what is a full blown economic collapse? What does it look like, and what skills would a person need to to cope with it? Well, the full blown economic collapse means your money does, is it's like the Weimar Republic. You know, it's it's like the uh, the South. You know, when you had your dollars and Confederate dollars, and they're they're only good for starting the fire with. I mean, that's the full blown collapse we're looking at. Is the financial system is gone and it's trade and barter. And at that point in time, it's a great leveler because it really means that, you know, how well you do in that depends on your skill sets, on your ability to network with people, to, to work together in your community. You know, that's when if your ability to, to, you know, repair stuff, fix stuff, make stuff, grow stuff, heal people, you know, those are like real skills that are really tradable and valuable, you know. The lawyer guy and and the uh, you know the stock market guys, well, when things go down, it's like their skills are worthless. It's it's real practical skills that help people get along because it's a community that it takes a community to pull through and survive. You know, it, I was even talking to Bruce Clayton. He's kind of like the father of survivalism, and he was saying, yeah, it takes a whole village, like a few thousand people, to really make it. Because no one person knows and does it all. You know, the lone survivalist, well, if he's all alone, somebody who's more better armed and better organized with, with a bunch of mean friends is going to come and take all of his cool stuff away. So it really takes a village where you can protect each other, watch each other's behinds, backsides, and share materials and share skills and knowledge. It takes that to build. I mean, people throughout the ages have collected in communities for a real reason, because people work better together in communities. Yeah, I think people are social animals, basically. And, and I don't mean animals in a derogatory way. I just right. mean it as a, a metaphor. That we're designed to, to function in community. That the, 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 the lone survivalist scenario doesn't work in the first place because I believe that if you're actually that kind of person, well, you'd already be living that way. There's plenty of wilderness to disappear into if that's what you wanted to do. I think mo- there, there are, there's the hermit, right? There's, you know, there's a guy or two like yeah, that. Sure. Yeah, but but that, that, that's like one-tenth of one-thousandth of one percent of the people that can even be happy living that way. If that's you, go nuts. But everybody else kind of has to, and self-sufficiency, I think, is like for the individual or even an individual family is largely a myth. I mean, Korea, so North Korea really couldn't pull off self-sufficiency very well. And to me, if a if a country has a hard time doing it as an isolationist right, right. country, how how are we going to do it as an isolationist family in the middle of the Ozarks or the Rockies? Right. Well, certainly, you know, you're talking about the example, the classic example, where you compare Cuba to North Korea when the Soviet Union collapsed and the lifeline for energy and oil and spare parts and technology and pharmaceuticals and all that all of a sudden just got cut one day in an instant. It was gone, both to Korea and, and Cuba. Well, in Cuba, the power of community really, you know, did pull the country together. I mean, they, they, the average Cuban got healthier, lost about 30 pounds of weight, you know, cut down about 25% of the calories they consumed. And they switched from pharmaceuticals to homeopathy and herbs and traditional folklore medicine. And they, they switched from chemical intensive farming to biointensive organic farming. And, you know, the country made it. But, of course, it's a nice tropical climate, so I'd much rather be stuck in a Cuba winter any day than a uh, North Korean winter with no heat and no power. But it's true 
in community, when you got a sense of community, which Cuba had much more than North Korea, people people pull through and do a whole lot better. You know, disasters tend to bring out both the best and the worst in people. And, uh, and for the most part, it brings out the best in people. And sometimes things get nasty, and it can bring out the worst. And, you know, that's where community really counts. Uh, I agree, and I think that a lot of times, like, you look at disasters, most of it does bring out the best in people. I think where people start to really turn is when they lose hope. So we look at Haiti, for instance, with the earthquake. There were places where things got really bad really fast because the people already had nothing. And when they lost the little bit they had, they just felt like, well, there's no, we can't fix this. I think as long as people feel that they can put it back together, They'll stick together. When they feel there's no hope, then we go into kind of the animalistic survival of the fittest nature. And that's why I've always said I'm more concerned about fallout than disaster. If disaster doesn't, you know, if you get a, a fire or an earthquake or whatever, if it doesn't take you in the event or seriously injure you in the event, then your problems aren't over. Your problems have just begun. Yeah. Because it's the aftermath that can be the most dangerous part of the situation, assuming a building doesn't fall on your head or something. I agree. I agree. The aftermath when things are, when people are just trying to get by and people start getting hungry and people start getting sick. And you know, I have a very big chapter in When Technology Fails called When High Tech Medicine Fails because the reality is in the aftermath, it's going to be both the, the weakened condition because you're, you know, but it's, it's really lack of You know, lack of clean drinking water, people going to the bathroom everywhere. You get a city of nine million people and sewage pumps aren't working. Where are they all going to go to the bathroom? Cholera, all that disease. So to have a bag of tricks so that you and your family can help yourselves and your friends and neighbors cope with potential health problems, you know, that's, that's going to be absolutely critical. So I've got a very large chapter devoted to alternative meds and herbs and things that really work. You know, and, and there's no one thing that I can say is a cure-all for everything. So I, I, I recommend a whole bunch of different modalities to people get practiced and have use of and know what they're doing ahead of time. So, you know, I mean, it could even be as, it, while things are still working, you could go to the hospital for a simple operation, come home with MRSA, methicillin-resistant staph infection, or Pseudomonas arginosis, or any one of a bunch of antibiotic-resistant bugs, and, you know, the, the world can still be going, but if you don't have a hand on these alternatives and what the doctors are feeding you isn't healing you, you know, you could lose an arm or a leg or your life. Yeah, I mean, and my other thought has always been when people say, you know, well, uh, about like the medical system failing, it doesn't have to be because the whole society broke down. I, I just mentioned this again on yesterday's show. It's funny how things kind of line up with a guest, but that if you want to tip over the medical industry uh, or the medical system, let's say, throw one good global pandemic at it and overload it, oh, yeah. and then it's not just the person that has H5N1, or it's not just the person that has some disease, frankly, that we, and I, my, my bigger fear is the disease we don't even know about yet. I mean, what was SARS 20 years ago? It didn't even exist, right? right. What was, what was AIDS 40 years ago? Nobody would have, they would have thought you were hiring somebody to help you. Um, so it, you never know what's next, but okay, so if you have that global pandemic, high lethality, high transmission rate, Just because you don't have that disease doesn't mean you don't have a problem. What about the diabetic, the guy that's sick from another thing, the guy with a tumor uh, that needs surgery or, or whatever it is that's trying to get access to medical care while the system is freaking shut down? Right. What about the person that has a usually commonly treatable, recoverable illness that can't get care? Right. Back in 1919, when the Spanish flu went around, in a single year, it killed several times as many people as all of World War One, And... When that happened, things shut down. You know, people stayed home. They didn't go to work. Trains stopped running. Uh, there weren't planes running, but boats. I mean, people just stayed home and hunkered down because they didn't want to get sick or, or they were staying home to care for their own sick people and their family rather than going to the hospital. So you're talking a situation where in those days you could walk over the hill and, and you know, buy, buy your eggs and milk and butter from the local farmer right over the hill. Nowadays, try to do that from most places where most people live. You know, fat chance. So you're talking a situation where the infrastructure just totally falls apart in a domino effect, and it's because some bug came along that there's no pharmaceutical magic bullet for. And if you're not prepared 
to deal with, you know, all of the standard things you take for granted, being able to go Safeway and buy what you want and go to the gas pump and stick it in your car and get the gas you want and do whatever kind of, you know, turn on the Internet and go to work and get your paycheck, then when that kind of, you know, domino hits, then you're you're in trouble. Everybody's in trouble. Let me ask you just from your research and what you've done, going absolute best case scenario, a mutated version of flu similar to H5N1 or God knows what else. Um, We understand it. We already have vaccines for flu, but this is a new strain. Best case scenario, how long before you have a deployable vaccine in sufficient quantity to actually make a difference from the time that flu surfaces? And, and, you know, let's say it's a bad one. It's something with a high, high, uh, high uh, contagion rate and has, you know, a death rate that people would think is small, which is actually enormous with like five, seven percent. Best case scenario is probably six months, but AIDS, what, 25 years working on it? Not You're still doing that. Uh, yep. hemorrhagic dengue fever, been working on it for 25 years, 20 years, still don't have it yet. Um, you know, I'd say best case scenario that everything goes perfect six months, but you know, we've got plenty of things we've been working on. Right now, extreme drug resistant tuberculosis. I mean, talk about a bug that has the potential oh, right now today that is in existence today. I mean, a few years ago, Everyone was watching while they were chasing that guy in his honeymoon all over Europe. They finally, like, got him off the plane in Canada and made him sit in one place and flew up a CDC jet with guys in bunny suits to personally, uh, personally escort the back, the guy back to a treatment center in Atlanta. And, you know, I mean, that's for one guy with a known bug. I mean, that's serious stuff. And this bug is growing in parts of, of the world where they don't have treatment. And, you know, it's, it's like, it's it's a known real threat right there, and it exists, and there's like a millions of people, a million people plus on the planet who have this right now. So, you know, this, this is not something way out in the future. This is there on the planet today, and it's a serious bug. So, yeah, I mean, it's just a matter of a crap shot. It's like rolling the dice, and when Mother Nature comes up with a, quote, winning combination that is both um, easily transmitted, like regular flu is, and extremely deadly... Not so deadly that it kills everybody so fast that it can't get anywhere. It's got, like the magic exactly. combination is deadly, but you know, easily transmitted, slow. deadly, but slow. So right. So yeah. if you're sick for a couple of weeks, people come to care for you, they get sick, they transmit to somebody else, etc. Too deadly, like um, Ebola is the classic example of something that's too deadly. And Marburg virus is another one. That's in the uh, Soviet Union's... Uh, ex-Soviet Union's arsenal of superbugs, and that was another one that was so deadly. I mean, just like a day, you're dead, you're gone. You're not spreading that because you don't get a chance to spread it very far. Um, Tuberculosis, you you bring up, that's an interesting one because that's something we can talk about years of infection. Um, And I think people have just like forgotten how deadly that was. I think TB's most famous victim of of American history would probably be Doc Holliday, who died in his 30s from it. Um, you know, the, the Wyatt Herb era, uh, right. whole group, right? So, I mean, this was a disease that killed a lot of people Millions. until we developed methods of treatment, and now the methods of treatment don't work, so we're back to square one with it. That's correct, and this is something that's a long, slow killer. You know, it, it can take years to die from TB, so you're sick and infectious for a long period of time, and, you know, some people die in a few months, but you, typically it's more like years. I mean, what's the most thing, I forget the name of the, the, um, poet. He was like the most famous poet of England and Britain and he died like at 30 years old with TB. And, you know, it's 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 a yucky, yucky disease and, and it's out there. Extreme drug resistant and uh, drug resistant TB are both out there right now. So, yeah, it, it's a big one. And, you know, there's a, for instance, I mean, let me give you something positive here. There is an herb that everyone, I have it, I stock it by the pound, and it's called Hysop, H-Y-S-S-O-P. And it's, according to Michael Tiara, who's the author of The Way of Herbs and The Way of Chinese Herbs, one of America's top herbalists, according to him, it's the only herb he knows of effective against active tuberculosis. So, and in Chinese oh. medicine, it's commonly prescribed for lung ailments. So I like to keep a pound of this on hand. And I have, my wife hit a, uh, I'm not sure if it was viral or bacterial, but it, it wouldn't respond to drugs. It was like a walking pneumonia that was totally drug resistant. And she drank 
just pounded hysop, you know, herb tea, and it's actually a pleasant herb. Some of these herbs are like really hard to handle, and hysop sure. isn't delicious, but it's actually pleasant. You know, it's kind of got a little sweet, flowery taste to it. It's not bad. So, boy, you know, I just stock a pound of that all the time. And 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 the other thing is, like, a friend of mine knew had a client come to him who was losing all his teeth. His teeth, uh, he had real bad gum disease. His teeth were all like getting ready to fall out. So he'd already scheduled to, to go to a dentist and have all of his teeth yanked and uh, and have a set of dentures made. So this person I know prescribed to him Hysop, and he took it and he packed it like chew in, in between his gums and his cheek. And he'd just do that, you know, kind of suck on it and pack it in there during the day. Well, it totally kicked the the infection in his gums and his teeth rerouted back into the into the jawbone and he didn't need to have his teeth pulled. I mean, this is a last... That's huge because, I mean, you think of medical failures. Well, if we have medical failures, good luck finding a dentist. So the fact that you can get some level of dental uh, improvement there is a huge thing. Oh, huge. So it's, it's you know, antiviral, antibacterial properties. There's other herbs like uh, usnea, which is a lichen on a tree that grows and is common over the country. And you can extract the... You can make an extract with just some vodka and usnea. And that's really powerful against antifungal, antibacterial infections. You know, garlic is really good, raw garlic. Um, once it's cooked, it's not very powerful. Uh, I know your girlfriend or wife might not like it if you do a raw garlic treatment, but it helps purge the body of parasites, and it's really good. You can put it on wounds and fungus directly. They're kind of burns, but it works. So, you know, there's a lot of really good alternative things. Uh, elderberry has been called the... The medicine cabinet of the hill people, broadband antiviral, antibacterial. In fact, uh, the Israelis, an Israeli company, developed Sambucol, which is an elderberry extract, and it's been proven to be far more effective than Tamiflu. But, of course, you know, it's made from an herb, so it's like, where's the money in this country? It goes to sure. multi-billion dollar pharmaceuticals, not to Sambucol, not to elderberry extract. So, you know, lots of things. Colloidal silver, proven effective against all-known uh, pathogenic bacteria. Uh, the body takes colloidal silver out of the bloodstream fairly quickly. So if you've got a lung thing, you've really got to breathe it in through a, uh, a nebulizer. You can't, you can't just drink colloidal silver and expect it to deal with an infection in the lungs. I mean, and for skin issues, you've got to get it directly on the skin. You can't just drink it and expect it to work. Let, let's chat about that a, a minute because I believe that it's one of the best kept secrets for, 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 for especially emergency medicine when you don't have other options. I think it's very, very effective, but I also think colloidal silver has been given a terrible bad name oh, yeah. by people that have basically turned it into snake oil, put it in a product that said, eat this every day. You know, it, I think if you take nano silver, a tablespoon or two a day, it's just prophylactic. I think that's fine. Uh, obviously, it can be overdone. There's the the blue man on Fox. The Smurf Blue's. man, yeah. Smurf, yeah, Papa Smurf, and <laughs> he had 16 years where he made a, he made a quart of it a day. He had a skin infection. Uh, he had a skin condition. Yeah, Papa uh -huh. Smurf, and and he, uh, he and then he was rubbing it on his skin as well as drinking it. And actually, for 16 years, it gave him great relief from his condition that had no pharmaceutical relief, but. His kidneys started having problems. He stopped eliminating it through the kidneys, and then, you know, the blood said, hey, I can't get it through the kidneys. It put it out through his skin, and he turned to Papa Smurf. So you can definitely overdo it. But it is, I believe, that it is not perfect. I mean, I've tried it on, I have a really nasty fungal, you know, chronic fungal thing from rock climbing shoes in the 70s. They had a rubber layer on them that, that grew, to, you know, nasty toenail fungus, and a bunch of us extreme climbers from the late 70s, early 80s, and uh, colloidal silver won't touch it. It won't do a thing on it. So it's not a cure-all. And even MMS, sure. you know, won't touch the fungus. It actually makes the fungus worse. So, you know, and, and pharmaceuticals, over-the-counter pharmaceuticals, well, it laughs at that. So I use, you know, a variety of herbs to keep it under control and keep it knocked down. And there was one really smelly 
combination that my family complained about so totally that appeared to have totally cleared it up, but I didn't know at the time you got to do it a couple months after everything, all symptoms disappear or it might come back. And it did. It's in the nail bed and it comes back. Yeah. Yeah. So it's one of those things where, uh, right. It's, it, I, I didn't continue it long enough afterwards. And, and if the other things I'm trying to still fail, I'll go back to the really smelly stuff. But my fam, oh, I tell you, people hated the smell. It was a mixture of <laughs> a third of fresh crushed raw garlic, a third tea tree oil, and a third neem oil. And huh. it was really pungent, but boy, you know, it, it worked. <laughs> you know? I like garlic. I, I, I never understand when people say, like, the garlic smelly. I... And as soon as I, you know, if I cook with garlic, or I know you mentioned that garlic actually loses a lot of its potency when you cook it. So, like one of the things I always recommend with people is when you're making a dish that you're gonna that garlic fits with, yeah. sure, cook with some of it, but then chop up one or two cloves at the end, and 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 you know after it's off the the stove, but the food's still warm, mix it into the food, and like it, it gets heated, but you don't cook all the volatile oils out of it that way. If you want the uh, beneficial effects, because it is, to me, if you said you can only have one natural thing to treat, to use as an herbal, uh, I, I think I would have to say garlic. It does so much. Yeah, you know, I, I'd agree. I mean, actually, top of my list, it's not herbal and it's not totally natural, is colloidal silver, but I'd say garlic is probably next. And, you know, kind of like the things I use on the most often is usnea or combination spilanthus usnea extract, Garlic, uh, colloidal silver, and um, yeah, those those are the top. I also have MMS. I think that that's a really important thing to have on hand called Miracle Mineral Supplements, Miracle Mineral Solutions. But in my case, I found the MMS actually makes the fungus go worse. So I've, <laughs> I've got it stocked because I, you know, I've, I've talked to Andreas Kalcher personally. And he talked about crippling arthritis in the hands. And after three days of MMS, he could use his hands again, and no drugs, no pharmaceuticals could touch it. And you know, there's there's a hundred thousand three day cures of malaria in Africa for for you know for twenty cents worth of MMS. So I think it's a really important thing to have on hand. But I'm a living testament. And actually, Jim Humble, the guy who brought MMS to the world, has the same issues with a fungus like I do that gets worse from MMS. So it's not a cure all. But it's certainly, boy, I tell you, you know, in spite of the fungal issues, if I had something that wasn't, you know, some nasty superbug that wasn't responding to anything else, well, yeah, I'd pound MMS for three days, and you won't feel so good when you're doing it. But, you know, if it kicks, if it kills malaria in three days and, and, and nothing else is responding, hell, I'll, I'll take the MMS, too. And give it a shot, give it a shot. yeah. And actually, I get very encouraged when people talk about something that is, uh, is, let's say an alternative, uh, a medical option. And when they say, well, it doesn't do everything. Because as soon as I hear it does do everything, then I, you know, I kind of start having the Jeopardy music in the back of my head and I'm really not paying attention anymore because you've lost credibility to me when you say that. If there was one thing that did everything, well, we'd all just take that and, and then, then death would go away and we'd all live forever. And right. it just doesn't work that way. I, but I agree. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but these are things we can do. What are some of maybe your your other like maybe some common herbs that you think are beneficial? Maybe not even for acute treatment, but for just you know cooking with or using in food preparation that, that do improve our health day to day. Well, curse, you know, uh, cursamen. It's a what's the, it, it, there's a a curry herb. You know, the bright yellow curry herb has turmeric. Turmeric, right? It has it has incredible anti-cancer properties to it. Just start cooking and using turmeric on a regular basis. Another thing that's really wonderful that I do use like every day is uh, oregano oil. Very powerful anti antibacterial, antifungal properties. You can put it on oil. If you put it on wounds, it's going to burn. It's, it, it's like you have to play with it and figure out if you're not supposed to use it full strength. You're supposed to mix it with other things, but often mm -hmm. I'll put like there's tea tree oil, and another thing I've been using is kajapute. It's K-A-J-U-P-T-E. It's a it's a Indonesian oil similar to tea tree oil. It's a melaleuca tree, but it's a which is a tea tree tree, but it's like a different strand, a different brand of tree than than tea tree. So it's very similar and pungent like tea tree oil. It's kind of a spinoff, and I've been using a lot of that lately. Um, you know, there's. 
some essential oils uh, in a vaporizer are really good. They can help with molds and, and fungus in the home. They can help purify your air. If you put a little, uh, you know, tea tree or kayaputi in there, or oh, what's you know, there's a flower that's really sweet smelling that's really good. Uh, Maybe lavender. Lavender. Lavender yeah. oil is really excellent to use, and that's good antifungal, antibacterial. So. I heard of a study one time, maybe you, because I can't remember exactly where or when. It was like France or England or somewhere they did a study with lavender oil, and they basically put misters in a hospital, and and, and they started misting lavender oil in on like a frequency, like a timer. Right. And it totally kicked the crap out of like the staph infections. You know, people go to the hospital a little sick and end up a lot sick from what's there. Right. It it didn't do like 100%, but it really knocked it down. And then you go... Well, duh, why don't you do more of this? And it smells nice, too. Right, you know? right. And I know a lady who had a house that she couldn't sell because of mold, high mold counts in a sure. house. So she got rid of some of the stuff, and then she you know, she couldn't afford like the $20,000 for the remediation. Mold size. removal specialist so, or whatever. So what she did was she started uh, using a diffuser, a little you know, air pump diffuser. We've since bought one ourselves, and we're using it with good results. And she put a combination of lavender and tea trees in there, and it totally wiped out the mold counts in the house, and she was able to sell the house. So, you know, it, it definitely can make a big difference. And, you know, there's not, I don't know if you'll find a lot of scientific studies or data on it, but you'll certainly anecdotal evidence from lots of people saying it made a, can make a huge difference. So there's, there's a whole bunch of things that can make a big difference. Absolutely. You know, we talked at the beginning a lot about community. One of the things that I think is just so important, and I think it's why Cuba, because I, I, I think we, we talked about the last time you were on that, 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 that movie, The Power of Community. Right. But what, what made Cuba be able to get through that isn't just that it's a tropical climate, because there's plenty of things I can grow in Pennsylvania that, that they can't grow in Cuba, but it was that they, even though they had gone to mass scale farming and all, people, it was, was new enough for them that they knew how to farm, they knew how to grow, and they immediately started doing it. So one of the things I think is so important for us today is to start producing food locally at a community level again. I agree. You know, when the Soviet Union collapsed, people in the Soviet Union all had kitchen gardens, and they because the, the country just didn't work very well, so they would supplement their food with, with local gardens. Every little spot instead of yards, they grew food, and and so they had the skills and the talent and the knowledge. And so when things collapsed, you know, it wasn't so bad. There's a saying that, it, you know, the fall is much harder when you've got further to fall. In the Soviet Union, because the country just didn't work very well, it's like when it did kind of collapse, it wasn't as bad. Another thing that made it not so bad was that when, when the government, you know, came in on Christmas Day and said it's over, you know, we're dissolving the Soviet Union, it's done, um, nobody got kicked out of their homes. The light stayed on, the power uh, stayed on, the water stayed on, the heat stayed on, the buses and trains still ran, you could still get around. You know, so so it's real different from this country where when when the dollar stops flowing then, you know, all of a sudden your house is boarded up and and the heat's off and the power's off and the water's off. So you know, in, in our case when things fall apart, it's it's probably going to be a lot tougher on us on the average. So we have a lot less kitchen gardens to help with the food issue. Now, one thing Russia did deal with was the, the, the devaluation of the ruble was like massive during that period of time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, the, it was, the dollars just went away. It was trade and barter and black market. And, you know, that's, that's pretty common when, when the financial system goes down. It's trade and barter and black magic, black market. And so having, and, you know, so the, you can store some stuff that's not that expensive that becomes quite valuable in trade and barter, like big lighters and toilet paper and antibiotics and healing herbs and, you know, basic stored food that's low cost, bags of rice. My, my mother-in-law is from Indonesia, and she went through World War II in the Japanese occupation, and a, and a lot of her friends were Dutch Indo immigrants in America, and, and there was this wonderful lady, she passed on a while back, and uh, her name was Dee. And she came from Indonesia and got a good start in America, and she had a little bag of jewels. See, they, they weren't rich people in Indonesia, but they lived on in the, in the country. And every sack of rice that they had was worth a ruby or a diamond or an emerald when things were falling apart. 
So, you know, they started out with a bunch of sacks of grain and they ended up with a little small bag of jewels that got them started in America. So, you know, think about that. I mean, a sack of rice equals a diamond or a ruby or an emerald or a gold ring. I mean, that's that's what you're looking at when things when the when the paper money is worthless. Yeah, and it also makes me leery for people who think their only solution is just take all their money and stick it in gold and wait because you'll be giving up a lot of gold to get a sack of rice if you have no rice. That I can't eat gold. Uh, the gold is for later. The gold <laughs> is for when I go somewhere else. The gold is for the recovery. The food is for now. If you try eating gold, it doesn't taste good, and if you eat enough of it, it'll kill you. Um, but, you know, rice, beans, dried meat, canned foods, a garden, That's right. those are things that feed you now. That's right. And think about that lady who was dirt poor, but they had a little farm, and she came out with a sack of jewels. And think about it. Well, maybe I should store more of the practical goods rather than spending hard-earned silver and gold on trading for simple little practical goods I could have stored for a tiny fraction of what that gold and silver cost me. And I think systems that produce are maybe more important even than storage. Storage is finite. I, rice is cheap stuff. It really is. Right. But you still have a, a, a spatial limitation. But you can put things, systems in place to produce food over and over. And, and like, I mean, you, if you think of a real collapse situation, what's going to be at a real premium is the stuff that doesn't store well. So meat, uh, so a rabbitry is such a small investment in space, but you can produce a rabbit a week with, you know, a 10 square foot area. Yeah, yeah, think anything. And it just, you know, each and every person has their own special skills and talents. So, and I, I totally believe in the guidance of spirit and the intuitional guide inside. And so when you start asking, you know, you know, Jesus says, ask and you'll receive. When you start asking for help and asking for guidance, then that voice, that still small voice inside can start speaking and saying, you know, you really should start doing this. You really should start doing that and start listening to that. Because when things are falling apart, you can't figure it out with your head. You know, the, the rational mind is only as good as the information base it has to draw upon. And that's always imperfect. And I tell you, in a collapse that situation when there's no TV, there's no internet, there's no radio, and maybe you can't even see the, through the through the smoky sky very far to figure out what the hell's coming. That's when that inner guide is so important because it knows instantly the right thing to do. And, and I teach an exercise called the pit of the stomach that that helps people to discern the voices inside between the voice of true guidance and the voice of the ego that's going crazy and and you know you can tell you can't trust the voice when it's the ego when it's changing its mind every 30 seconds and it's like well wait a minute wait a minute you know this is worthless it's like i i I've, I've decided 10 different things i should do in the last 5 minutes and i don't know i don't have a clue which one i should do so obviously i got to shut that voice up and calm down and and get that true inner compass going. And I believe that God gave that inner compass to every each and every individual human being, regardless of what religion or spiritual belief you may have. I think it's inborn in every single one of us. And God doesn't really personally care if you're if you're uh, you know uh, if you're Hindu or Buddhist or Muslim or Christian. I don't I, I don't personally think he cares. It, it's more like let me let me endorse that, that statement guy. right there. I feel the exact same way. I I, I am very uh, I have very little concern for what someone else's particular brand of faith is. Uh, I just really think that it's important that you have some spirituality and faith in your life because people that don't I know I'm about to tick off all the, and there's a fairly large number of people that are atheists that listen to my show, and there's a fairly large number that are, you know, uh, dyed-in-the-wool Southern Baptists, so it's a broad spectrum. But I think the people that have no faith, I mean, at least deism or something like that, they don't even have that, I think that they have a very empty place. And and, and I, I know they say they're happy, but I, I when I talk to them, I really don't see it. Yeah, I tend to agree. You know, it's uh, I don't try to push. If it works for you, man, go ahead. And I, I'd also tell those people, atheism is your atheism is your religion. You know, if you're a good person, <laughs> if you're a good person, yeah. you care and you want to help and you want to do the right thing. That's what matters to me. And I don't care if you're atheist or Buddhist or or Christian or you know Islam or what. I mean, personally, I was born and raised Jewish. I call myself a Christian now, but 
but I'm not out there judging anybody of any faith. So it's it's like whatever, you know. Are you a good person? Do you care? Do you want to do the right thing? Do you want to lend a hand to someone, or do you turn your back on your neighbor when they're in need? That's what matters to me. And to me, Matt, those are the people. And again, I could care less which 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 creed or faith they come from. But the people that are the people like you just described right there, they're the ones that will actually survive in a, a collapse scenario. Uh, whether it's a, a small scale collapse or a massive collapse, because when you're that person, then other people see value in you. And who do you band together with? People you see value in, or people that you don't see value in? So right. who who's going to have somebody have their back? The person that's a, a contributor, not the person that's a taker. Right. It's it, what goes around comes around, and you know when you extend the hand and they take your hand and you help and you pull together, then it, everyone everyone's better off for it. And when you turn your back and when you say, you know, I'm going to shoot you, mother, because I I need all this for myself, that's, you know, that's not me. I mean, if I end up dying because I share and I starve, well, so be it. But I'm not going to go kill someone because their kid's starving and they need some food and, and, uh, and I'm going to, you know, blow them away rather than extend a hand. I mean, that's just not me. I, I I don't want to live that way. You know, you might say, well, if I'm starving, it'll be in a different way. But hey, I've fasted for 14 days and done a 10 mile run at at 7,000 foot elevation after 10 days of fasting. I know I can go for a long time. And if you clean the toxins out of your body, when you have no food, you'll find an amazing amount of energy. I mean, you're talking to someone who's been there and done that. And and I can do it. You can do that too. So, it's it's like I, there's a rule of threes that I talk about sometime in survival when you know there's three seconds without without blood supply to the brain and you're out three three minutes without breathing you know in in air supply and you're out uh, three hours without adequate uh, protection from the elements when it's extremely hot or extremely cold and you can start becoming hypo or hyperthermic and start losing your function and and can start dying. Three days without water. If you've got to, if you've got to be physically active in hot weather, and people start to die. Three weeks without food. Most Americans could easily survive three weeks without food without a problem. You may not feel good. You may feel terrible, but you could do. Oh, it. you ain't gonna be happy about it, yeah. but you'll you'll live. Yeah, you'll live. You can do it. And most Americans, I mean, hell, the average American probably go for two months without food. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. I, <laughs> I don't think I could, but you know, a lot of people out there. I live, I live outside of Reno, and there's, you know, with they've got some pretty big of, stores. Yeah, well, the home of the uh, the endless buffet. So you know, oh yeah, there's, there's there's a lot of waddlers out there, and they could stand to go for a few months without food. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I I would also say that when you, when we start looking at things like food, there is a lot that we can do to feed ourselves from the land around us, and that extends that 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 three week period of time, and I'm not saying that you can go out and forage and feed yourself and stay uh, stay in the same condition you are in right now. But it is an extender. Oh yeah, in fact, you can, you know, the ability to forage in a total collapse situation will make a huge difference. You know, a lot of people say they're going to count on their guns and ammo. Well, I grew up in Vermont. I started hunting and. And, you know, in the fifth grade with a 12-gauge shotgun, my dad took me out duck and deer hunting. And, and uh, you know, the last day of hunting season was a drag. I mean, it's like, yeah. it's like yeah. the, the, the animals that, did, that didn't already get killed and popped in the pot, you know, they learned, they got smart. The reason they're not dead is they knew how to make themselves scarce. So, I mean, I, I often give talks and I, I'll have a room, you know, 50, 100 guys and they're hunters. And I'll say, how many of you guys had a good day on the last day of hunting season? These guys have been hunting for a long time, and usually one or two hands raise up. And it's like, okay, yeah. you've got 50 hunters, and they've been hunting for the last 20 years, and two guys have had a good day in the last day of hunting season. Well, a collapse scenario, you're talking the last day of hunting season 100 times over. Forever. Foraging yeah. makes a big difference. You know, in, when you forage... You know, you can make it. In, the people in Korea, when it collapsed, that weren't tied into the government food line, you know, they lived by foraging. And all the rats and squirrels and mice, well, they were gone. And, and yeah, even yeah. earthworms and, and the roots of grass were being being gotten and bark on trees. And so your ability to forage 
you know, in that situation, but to make do between harvests is is critical. And you know, I, mean, I, I got a great. Never, I hope I never get there. I mean, I hope it never. Yeah. I got a great real-life story for you that you just made me think of. When I was a kid, I was probably about 11, 12 years old, and I was going through our shanty, which is like a shed you call a shanty up in Pennsylvania. And I'm going through all these rusted old tools and stuff, and find all this, and I find about five rat traps. And these are old rat traps. They're not made with that cheap wood. They're like oak right. plank with the big spring. And every single one of them had a hole through the, the wood, right? So, uh, you know, you're a kid. You're curious. What's this about? So I asked my grandfather. He said, them squirrel traps. I said, what? He said, during the Great Depression, uh, when we wanted to feed ourselves, one of the things that was easy to get were squirrels. Right. So you take the trap and you nail it to a tree, you put a little peanut butter on it, and you set it. And sometimes you get a squirrel, sometimes you get a chipmunk, sometimes, you know, whatever. But it was easier than hunting, and there was plenty of them out there. And, you know, seasons and laws and all kind of were ignored at that point. Oh, yeah. You know, you're trying to feed yourself. And it was just, you know, a, a, a flat-out reality that this is one of the ways that my family fed themselves during a hard time. And I've, I've never forgotten that. The, the reality is a supply of rat and mice traps might make the difference between your family being well-fed and going hungry and starving in that situation. And, you know, Cody Lundeen talks about that a lot. And I, I, you know, borrowed some of his instructions from my new book, When Disaster Strikes, on the best way to cook rat, you know, cook rats and mice and deal with them. And, and, you know, <laughs> I mean, it, uh, believe me, your neighbors will catch on. But, you know, you could be well ahead of the game right there. And once everybody catches on, well, you better go to bark and, and roots and other things. But it's, uh, it, you know, it's not a pleasant topic. And it's like car insurance. You know, nobody buys car insurance and plans and says, gee, I got insurance. I want to get in a head-on collision today. It's like, no, you know, you, you buy that insurance. You pray and hope to God you never need it. That day comes, maybe somebody's texting on their cell phone, runs a stop sign, or maybe you hit some ice due to no problem of your own, and you know, you, you know, your car slammed into a, a wall. You thank God you had that insurance. And this emergency prep and learning some skills about foraging and wild edible, you know, wild edible herbs and plants, and how to, how to do some alternative healing, get yourself a homeopathy multi-remedy kit, you know, all of these things talked about in both my books, When Disaster Strikes and When Technology Fails, it's just insurance, you know, and, and it, it never hurts to learn to be self-reliant, to learn how to do these things. And if that day comes, you might be able to, you might just be this incredible service to your friends and neighbors to help them out when that bug's coming around and you've got the answer, you've got the medicine and nobody else can get it because the doctors and pharmaceuticals are either unavailable or totally overloaded, or what they have simply isn't working. Agreed. I'll tell you what, what I'll add to that, and what my you know my life's work has been about with the Survival Podcast is, and that's all true even if the the the, the whole thing never completely falls apart. That's correct. That it improves your life and improves your community every single day, and you will. This is a hundred percent guarantee. I will make to every human being. Unless you're dead and don't care, in the next 30 seconds, you will experience a disaster in your life, period. It might be losing a spouse or a loved one or a child. It might be a severe in injury. It might be a job loss that wipes you out personally, financially. Oh, yeah. And in some ways, that can be worse than an economic collapse on a whole because the economic collapse on a whole, things like paying bills are kind of like, you know... what. It, 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 there's a point where so many people lose their job and lose their money at the same time. The banks can't foreclose on all the houses. There's no one to sell them to. Right. But when you have your personal financial collapse, oh, yeah. everybody still expects to be paid. Yeah, I've been, you know? I've been, been there and done that one. The, uh, <laughs> I, I think we I, all have on different degrees. You know, call me crazy for not declaring bankruptcy because uh, at one point I was, I was owing $850,000 and I mean, I was making over a hundred grand. And and going backwards and not keeping yeah. up with my bills. I mean, it was like to have to make one hundred and fifty thousand dollars gross a year just to keep my nose above water. I mean, that was ridiculous. So it it's it's um, so I've been there and done that. And it's not like I'm you know in Fat City now. I mean, I I still not worth what I was when I got out of high school. But I'm I'm going in the right direction now, and I 
I've negotiated bills down and, you know, gotten out and gotten, I'm, I'm going in the right direction now. <laughs> sure. So, so I, I would say that the two things that have made me happy were one, I stopped being successful in the corporate world because I just quit and said, I don't want to do that anymore. And two was I got rid of my debt. Yeah. Those two things, um, one of my, my, my business partners from a, a prior business was just up visiting this week and he said, I think the reason you've lost so much weight is because you no longer have any stress in your life. He's like, I, I, I can look at you and I can't see stress anymore where you were very good at what you did before, but you were always stressed. Ah. And, and it wasn't even just the debt that was stressful. It was the that lifestyle, that living, it's almost like living a lie, I feel, in corporate America anymore. Like, you can't say what you really think. I've got to sit down and break bread with a person that I don't even want to talk to. Right. You know, and, and, and now this, the freedom that comes with self-sufficiency yeah. is, is just massive and it, I think it's very healing in and of itself. I mean, I eat better and all too, but still, I think a lot of it's just no, you're not having a daily bath internally of cortisol. Yeah, you've got balance in your life now, and you know, balance. Everybody's balance point is different, but everybody knows you've got that inner compass that says either you're in balance or you're out of balance. And when you're out of balance, then it's like you ask that inner compass, like, how do I get to balance? You know, what steps do I need to take to get balance in my life again? You know, how do I do that? And that's, you know, it's it's a different answer for different people, but I'd say that self-reliance, self-sufficiency is a good step in the right direction. Digging in the earth brings balance, brings grounds you, you know, helps you feel better. Um, think about when you feel better and when you feel worse, you know. Think about when you look better and when you look worse. Not through cosmetics, but through the reality of how you look. I mean, is your energy good? Is your health good? Is your skin vibrant? Are you smiling? You know, those those yeah. are those are telltale signs. And uh, and take the makeup off and look at you without the makeup if if you use makeup. Sure. Yeah. Don't cover it up and say it looks good because you don't you're not seeing it then. I I think there's been more and more studies coming out lately. I because I you know I have like I have like a thirty thousand person research team. It's like everybody that listens to this show is always monitoring and sending me stuff, so it's awesome. And I've been getting more and more stories lately uh, about how people are healing themselves with gardening. Um, everything from just, like, I'm actually talking, like, physical illnesses that, that people are having lower incidences of illnesses if they're gardeners, um, which I think is more than just the diet. I think it's being out there in the air, getting the, the soil microbes, having your body build natural resistance, because that's the way humans are supposed to live, not sterilized. Uh, to things like soldiers that are coming home who are, you know, deeply laden with regret, survivor's guilt, PTSD, uh, that are going to small-scale farming and basically healing their lives and everything in between. And I just think that, like, when we, we really didn't lose touch with that agricultural side, even when people went to the cities and the factories, people still pretty much gardened until I would say like the 60s and the 70s. And that's when, like, and then in the 80s with the me generation, then it just fell off to almost nothing. And I think that was a gaping hole, and I think people are rediscovering that component now. Yeah, I think there was a resurgence of it in the 60s with the, you know, hippie movement back to earth, back to nature movement. And then kind of in the 70s and 80s, it just sort of died, you know. And the, the hippies all graduated and got jobs. Yeah, you know? it's and like they, they got kids, they got mortgages, they got jobs, and I was like, oh, boy. <laughs> and they just got sucked into the system. That's correct. And, uh, you know, I'm one of them. <laughs> I was a young Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't, it wasn't around in the 60s, but I definitely got sucked into the system in the 90s, you know. It, it became what you do. You go out, you get a good salary, you get a good job, you go out, you, you form a name for yourself, and you get all kinds of money, and usually you find enough ways to dispose of it that it doesn't matter. Right, right. As your income <laughs> rises, so does your debt, and so does your, yeah. your need for income. All of those things. Yeah, been there, done that, all of those. So. What are some of your thoughts here as we wrap here at the end of the hour? Like for a person that's just getting started, I get people listening to the show that have been doing this stuff for 25 years that are ahead of probably you and me both, and I get people that are coming in that are just like almost like there's almost too much to do. For the person just getting started that just wants to start taking a walk in the right direction, uh, what are just a few things they can do to kind of get things going? Well, Start a little backyard garden, kitchen garden. Even if you don't even have backyards, if you're in an apartment, start like on the windowsill, grow some tomatoes, do that. Do some camping and backpacking. There is nothing like, and start, you know, if you've never been out camping, start with car camping first. You know, just get a tent, cheap tent at Costco, whatever. 
Uh, you know, all of the gear, I recommend specific gear in both my books, When Tech Fails and When Disaster Strikes, because I've been a backcountry person since I was, my parents started me hiking in, at eight, like age four and five and, and backpacking at age six and seven. And so, you know, it's, it's like nothing like being out there for two or three days with stuff on your back when you realize, oh wow, I really wished I brought that or oh god, I carried this stuff, my back's killing me and I never touched it the whole time, I don't need that next time. I mean, just start getting in touch with nature, start doing this, start developing your self-healing kits, start doing some basic food storage, but really, really focus on the health thing, because the health is going down in America really fast, and there's so much antibiotic-resistant stuff out there. You know, really start working on improving your health, and, you know, I do... Uh, devote chapters in both my books to it, but the big book, When Technology Fails, that's really got the extensive chapter. Though there's some new things that I wasn't aware of a few years ago when I did the update to When Tech Fails that are in When Disaster Strikes. And if you want to get a basic start, there's no better guide than picking up my book, When Disaster Strikes, to walk you through the basics of preparedness, of getting your food storage act in hand, getting your health, self-health work in hand, First aid guides, survival guides built into both books, built-in survival book, built-in first aid manual in both books. Really valuable stuff. The smaller, newer book is really, if you are if you just want to get started and it's kind of overwhelming, pick up When Disaster Strikes. It's not imposing. It'll help you walk you through things and give you very specific advice in case you are stuck in a crisis. Like, there's no power and it's really cold, 10 degrees below outside. What do I do? Uh, there's a hurricane. There's an earthquake. Uh, there's a nuclear event. What do I do? What strategies do I do? All that's laid out in, in the new book, When Disaster Strikes. So, you know, it's it just just start somewhere. And, and don't be too imposed. You don't have to do it all at once. Just start taking a step. The journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step. Lao Tzu, 2,000 years ago, famous quote. And still as applicable today is when it was first uh, penned with uh, probably a feather and some sort of primitive <laughs> ink. Um, absolutely. Let me throw in a plug at the end. I, I know you've, you've got your new book out, and it's a smaller, more condensed version with some new stuff in it. And some people maybe feel, feel uh, overwhelmed by a book as big as When Technology Fails, but I love it. I think it's probably one of the best books for the prepper library you can get your hands on. Sure, it's big, but read it a chapter at a time, and each chapter is almost like a mini book. And as I said to Matt uh, before we got into the interview, my belief with One Technology Fails is if I if I run out of everything else I can do with it and somebody tries to break in my house, I can beat them to death with it, and, uh, or at least subdue them with a couple good headshots with it because it's that, that kind of a book. And uh, I definitely recommend you pick up both of Matt's books. Matt, Hey, man, I really appreciate you being with us today. Thanks so much. This is a great interview. I think it's uh, given people a real deep look into the breadth of knowledge that you offer in your books. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me on. And, you know, if I was to pick two books that I wanted to carry with me and when everything went down, I'd say, or three, I'd say Carla Emery's Encyclopedia of Country Living, my When Technology Fails book. It's big, but, you know, you can't say it all in a little book. And the, and, the, and the last book I would make sure to have would be a really good illustrated guide to edible plants and herbs in your that applies to your part of the world that shows pictures, color pictures of various seasons of plants. I'd say those three things would be the top of my list. If I had nothing else to have with me, I'd want those three things. Yeah, definitely. And on the field guide, I think you keyed on something very important there. Something that shows pictorially what these plants look like at different parts of the season. Because I think one of the biggest holes most people have is they learn what to identify and how to forage. And then they just kind of like are to set it and forget it mode where they just think, well, if it ever happens, I'll go and do it. Well, what you should be doing is when you're talking about camping and backpacking and hunting and stuff like that earlier, every time you're out there, you should be looking for stuff even if you don't need it now because guess what? Most of the wild edibles are perennial in nature. That's how they, because nobody goes and plants them. So that means if they're there now, they'll be there next year and the year after that and the year after that. And even though they might not be beneficial to you at a certain time of year when they're not good for harvest, if you can identify them then, then you know when spring comes around or summer comes around, hey, they're going to be there. I agree. I agree. Well, again, man, thanks for being on the show. 
Uh, again, folks, this is Matthew Stein with us today with uh, two great books. I'll have links in the show notes to them. When Technology Fails is the giant Bible of prepping, as far as I'm concerned. And his new book, uh, When Disaster Strikes, uh, equally engaging. Make sure you check them out. Again, Matt, thanks for being with us today. Oh, it's a pleasure, Jack. And, and have a wonderful day. And, you know, I ask everyone to do your best to both change the world and do your best to be ready for the changes in the world. And, you know, God bless and go out there and do your best. Well, uh, again, wise words. Thanks a lot, Matt. With that, this has been Jack Spierko today along with Matthew Stein, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Let me show you a better way